0: Father, we we stand amazed in Your presence. We stand amazed as we consider Your greatness, Your glory and power, Your sovereignty over all the world that even when it would seem to men that the enemy is winning, the enemy never wins. You're sovereign over all. You determine the course of history. And at any time you are able to intervene and accomplish your incredible purpose. And we pray that you would do that again. But in the meantime, while we experience what we are seeing in in, in our world and, and the wickedness that is all around us, we are reminded that you have purpose even in all that is taking place now. And perhaps it's preparing us for your return. And Lord, if that's the case, come quickly. I ask that you would sanctify your people however and that you would bring us to repentance, that we would be faithful servants. That's what we are. We are, we are your uh, duoloi, your slaves. We have nothing except what you have given to us, and we pray that you would take us and use us in this world. That we would not be afraid. That we would be courageous, like these men that we are studying, and we know the only reason they were courageous, were, courageous were, was because of your. Holy Spirit, which worked within them, Your Holy Spirit, which also works within us. Empower us, equip us, make us fearless of men. Be with our session now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We did look last night at the pre-Reformation, John Wycliffe and John Huss and we saw the seeds of reform coming. We identified the problems in the church and the, the abuses of the people, the false doctrine, the heresy that was present within the church. And now here we are many years later, a hundred years really after John Huss, and we find these same things are still happening, and even on a greater scale. You see, as we enter into the 16th century now, in the Reformation proper, we learn that the Pope has a problem. He is building St. Peter's, and St. Peter's is incredibly expensive. And they have hired the most famous and perhaps most talented artist in the world to help. He is, of course, painting the Sistine Chapel, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. He's also involved in the architecture. Michelangelo was an extraordinarily gifted man. But he wasn't cheap. It cost money to hire Michelangelo. And so all of this that the church was doing in building this incredible monument to the church's success, if you want to call it that, the place of the Pope, it was costing a lot of money. And in spite of all of the abuses, the tithes they were collecting, the indulgences and everything else, the church was somehow running out of money. They're having trouble affording this. And so, how was the Pope going to solve this problem? And he came up with a great solution. He was going to sell indulgences. But these indulgences weren't going to be like other indulgences. These were super-duper indulgences. These indulgences would grant you freedom completely from purgatory. And not only that, if you gave enough money, they would absolve you from all future sins. They would even get your lost loved ones out of purgatory as well immediately. Pay money towards St. Peter's and immediately the Pope would grant forgiveness of all sins and your parents even could get out of purgatory if they are currently there. Surely that was going to be enough to raise money to pay for St. Peter's, but little did he know what would result from that decision. He had no idea that this would lead to the beginning of the great... Protestant Reformation, all because of the response of a little-known, insignificant German monk named Martin Luther. Luther was born November the 10th, 1483 in Eisleben, Germany, which is about 12 miles from Berlin. His parents were domestic servants. They were peasants. His father's name was actually Hans Luder. But Martin didn't think Luther was very sophisticated, and so he eventually changed his last name to Luther, Martin Luther. Hans would eventually leave his job as a servant, and he would become a miner and he was very ambitious. he became fairly successful, and he was able to make a, a good enough money and so he and he and his uh, some friends of his went in together and they worked a copper mine, and he really became successful at, at that point, and he was able to send Martin off to. Uh, to the university. Luther's mother's name was Margaret. She was strict but a very loving parent. Well, Luther did go to the University of Erfurt in 1501. He received his bachelor's in 1502, his master's in 1505. And when we th- talk about Martin Luther, you're going to see some of this. Some of it I'm not going to tell you about. Some of it I'm going to leave to the side in the history of Martin Luther. I'll be glad to tell you about it later if you want. But we talk about Martin Luther's bravado, and if you know anything about Martin Luther, this was a man who uh, wasn't afraid to, to say words. <laughs> he was not afraid uh, to say insulting words. He was not beyond him to to call people names. Uh, he was very uh, uh, he was very uh, very boisterous, very bold, but he was also very, very intelligent. Luther was a brain, he was very, very intelligent, and Hans saw this, and he had great plans for his son Martha, Martin. He wanted him to become a lawyer because. If Martin were to go off and become a lawyer, he would make good money. And you know what? When Martin makes good money as a lawyer, when mom and dad retire, well, he can take care of us. This was Hans's retirement plan, was Luther going off and becoming a lawyer. And so in May 1505, Luther went to law school. But that wasn't for him. He didn't want to be a lawyer. He wasn't interested in that. That was like my dad. My dad... Uh, told me when I was in high school that he wanted me to become an engineer, son. An engineer. They make good money. You should go and become an engineer. But I was making C's in math. Engineering was not for me. That was not uh, That was not in my future. And so Luther looks at being a lawyer, even though he is much more intelligent than I am. That just wasn't anything that he was interested in. He was really interested in the things of God. And so in July of 1505, he decided he was going to go home, visit his father, and he was going to discuss his future. He told his father... He did not want to go to law school anymore. He wanted to enter into the monastery and become a monk, and he wanted to learn more about God. And Hans said, no, mm -mm, no, and sent his son back to law school. He was not interested in Luther entering into the monastery. That would ruin his plans. And so Luther, very discouraged, decided he was going to, to head back to law school. But on his way back... Very famously, he enters into a lightning storm and and lightning strikes around him and Luther cries out, Help me, Saint Anne, I will become a monk. This is a vow he is making. If you would spare me from this lightning storm, I will indeed enter into the monastery. Well, Saint Anne, you may not know, but Saint Anne was actually Mary, the mother of Jesus. It was her mother, Jesus' grandmother. Now you might not know that because it's absolutely not true, but in Catholic tradition, St. Anne was Jesus' grandmother. And they really put a high premium on St. Anne because somehow you've got to have Jesus born without original sin. Oh, and if Jesus is born without original sin, well, then Mary's sinless as well. We've got the immaculate conception of Mary. And so we've got to go back a generation and we get to St. Anne. And so we not only elevate Mary, now we elevate Mary's mother, Anne, who we just pulled out of somewhere. Who knows? Well, St. Anne just so happened to also be the patron saint of minors. So Hans... The, saint, the patron saint of Hans and the Luther family. And so Luther has made a vow to St. Anne. And, and Luther takes this vow very seriously. You're going to learn in just a little bit that Luther was very superstitious and very afraid of God. He was terrified of God. And so I, you know, I believe that Luther was probably serious in this, but there's also been a little bit of speculation that he was also being manipulative. That... If he would make a vow to the patron saint of minors, and tell his dad that he made that vow, then Hans was going to have to agree to let him go off to the monastery. So it may have been that Luther was playing a little bit of games here, uh, but none of us will never know. It wouldn't surprise you would it, to find out that Luther was being a little manipulative there. But we don't know. But what we do know is that Luther kept that vow. He went back. He told Hans about the vow. And sure enough, Hans reluctantly agrees. And so Luther throws a great party, drinks a whole lot of beer um, as, as he was wont to do in those days and sells all of his stuff and he takes a vow of poverty and he enters the monastery. He chose to enter the order of the Augustinian monks over the Dominicans. Many people believe that he chose the Augustinians because they were a lot more strict. And Luther, as we're about to learn, was very, very strict with himself, very legalistic, really wanted to do everything he could to please the Lord. And he was a very serious monk. He was devout in prayer. He would participate in extended fasts. He would beat his back in order that he could stay up all night and pray. He would take ropes and tie knots in them, and he would whip himself to keep himself up at night and pray. He would sit out in extreme cold to show dedication uh, to God in that way. Now, we know that's that's sinful. We don't, we don't earn God's favor by any of those ways, but in this type of thinking, that was nothing out of the ordinary, these ascetic Practices. Luther, looking back, said, "...if anyone could have earned heaven by monkery, it was I." He was the monkiest of all monks, he would say. He wrote this. He said, "...when I was a monk, I, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice. I tortured myself with casting vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to require my righteousness by works." End quote. You can see where he is. He believes he has to earn God's favor, and, and he's not exaggerating. The stories about Luther in the monastery they're, um, they're very captivating. Luther would would go and he would confess his sins, and of course they would all go to the confessional. Now he lives in a monastery, and ask yourself the question: How much trouble does somebody get in in a monastery? And so all the priests, they would go and they would enter into the confessional and they confess their sins. And most of the other men would stay in there two, three, maybe five minutes tops. Luther would spend hours. Luther would go into the confessional and at times would stay for six hours confessing his sins. What in the world? And then he would leave the confessional and he would head back to his room and he would remember a sin he forgot to confess. And he would enter into a time of depression and he would go to his room and he would stay up all night whipping himself and praying and trying to somehow absolve himself of these sins until he could go back again. Some of the older monks became very frustrated with Luther for this. They said, you're not allowed to come back until you actually have a sin to confess. And they just got really tired of it. He, he just could not get over the fact that he was a sinner. It was, it was a real struggle with him and he would really deal with that anxiety the rest of his life until even even when he became to understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it would be a temptation for him to revert back to that. Uh, Is that ever a temptation for you? There's a great quote by Luther back there on that board. Luther said, when I look at myself in the mirror, I never understand how I can be saved. But when I look at Jesus, I never understand how I can be lost. I understand that quote because when I look at myself, how in the world is somebody like me a Christian? We can struggle with that. We forget that at times we are tempted to cast aside what we know to be true, that we are justified on the merits of Christ and not our own, and Luther would understand that. Well, he was ordained in 1508, and as an ordained priest, he had to serve his first communion. He was at extremely nervous about this. Remember what they believed about communion, that they really hold in their hands the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he went to give this first communion. His father has come to watch him. His father, Hans, has made the trip. He wants to see Luther uh, do his first communion. And when Luther got up there to do it, he couldn't. He hadn't forgotten the words. But as he thought about a sinner such as himself, holding the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He trembled and he called it the terror of the holy. And he put it down and he, he could not go through with it. He was very discouraged by this. He was terrified that God was going to kill him on the spot for even trying to do such a thing, as sinful as he was. Well, in 1510, Stoppets, his superior there at the monastery... Believing that the young monk could be very special, if only he could get over this anxiety, recommended that Luther go on a pilgrimage. And so he sent Luther to Rome. And Luther went over there to Rome excited about what he is going to see. And and he got over there and what he saw really discouraged him. He said that the religion there was very crass and that the Mass was really done in in an irreverent way. While in in Rome, he was going to say the Mass and he started going through it and, and the other priests were encouraging him to move faster, move faster, move faster. And he was very bothered by this. But the reason why they wanted him to go faster is that they were charging people money to come in there and participate in the Mass. And so the faster you went, the more people you got in there, the more money you made. And he saw the abuse of the church there in Rome up close and personal and it really, really disgusted him as he saw it was all about the money. Well, there in Rome, they also had the steps that were supposedly taken from Pilate's court, the very steps which Jesus had been on when He was condemned to die. And it was said that if you climbed up those steps on your knees and you said a, a paternoster, which is the Lord's Prayer in Latin, that if you climbed those steps in Latin, that at the end of that climb, that God would give you whatever you wanted. And so Luther did such a thing. He wrote this. He said, At Rome I wished to liberate my grandfather from purgatory and went up the staircase of Pilate praying a paternoster on each step for I was convinced that he who prayed thus could redeem his soul. But when I came to the top step, the thought kept coming to me, who knows whether this is even true. Wasn't convinced. Didn't believe it. History tells us he went out to the market and bought a fish. I don't know why that's important to history to tell us, but it, but it does. History tells us that's what he did. He just saw no power in this. Superstition, nothing to it. It really didn't relieve him of his guilt and his sin and nothing that he did even even helped. Well, he was encouraged by Staupitz to pursue a doctorate at Wittenberg and he went to work and he received his doctorate in 1512. And he did some teaching at Wittenberg and also at Erfurt while he worked on his doctorate. And after Receiving his doctorate, he had to take a vow to to teach and to defend the purity of Scripture, but he did not take a vow of obedience to the Pope. Now, we've already seen how serious Luther takes his vows. So he's taken a vow to defend Scripture. He did not take a vow to defend the Pope. And Luther will take that vow very seriously. Well, in studying for his doctorate, he had to know Greek and Hebrew as well as memorizing large portions of the writings of the fathers, and for the first time now in studying for his doctorate, he's actually able to really get his hands on the Bible and start studying it for himself. He's already been teaching. He's already been a priest. He's already performed the Mass. But just now getting his doctorate, is he able to really begin looking at Scripture for himself? That's how backwards the church had become. Well, in the year 1514, he became a professor at Wittenberg, and he lectured there on the Psalms, on Romans, Galatians, Hebrews... These were verse-by-verse lectures. Luther basically preached sermons to his class as they would attend his, his lectures there. He was an administrator. He was also the district vicar for 11 other monasteries in the area and he was elected the people's priest in Wittenberg in 1516, which meant to Luther he was responsible for the people in Wittenberg. If you came into Wittenberg and disturbed the people, Luther would feel a personal responsibility to protect them as the people's priests there. And so Luther is a professor, he's an administrator, he's a churchman. Now we're at 1516 and you know what's about to happen in 1517. And so before we get there, I need to make a really important point here. In 1519, Charles V is elected the Holy Roman Emperor. Now Charles V is Spanish. He hates heresy. However, within the Roman Empire, he doesn't have much authority except what is allowed him by the seven princes of that empire. And one of them is Duke Frederick of Saxony. And Duke Frederick of Saxony is the head of Wittenberg University. And he will view Luther as being his man. Now, Duke Frederick is a Roman Catholic. He will die a Roman Catholic. But he will protect Luther throughout Luther's life. Luther would have been anywhere else, anywhere else in Europe, perhaps even anywhere else in Germany outside of Duke Frederick's protection. He probably would have been killed. But because he is under the protection of Frederick, Luther will die of natural causes. He will live his life as an outlaw, but no one will ever kill him because he is there under the protection of Duke Frederick. Now we come back to building St. Peter's or St. Peter's, excuse me. Now, in Catholic theology, sins are forgiven through penance. And penance requires three acts on the part of the sinner. First, the sinner must be contrite. There must be real contrition. There must be genuine sorrow over sin. Second, the person must confess his sin orally to the priest. He must confess the sin of which he has committed. And third, he must perform some act to show his sorrow for his sin and indicate payment of it. But for those who could not do those things, you could buy an indulgence which would grant you forgiveness of your sins. And so we already talked about the fact they're building St. Peter's Now the Pope has introduced this new super indulgence, this new indulgence that would forgive you of all your past, all your future sins, also get all your family out of purgatory, so on and so forth. This could be applied to your loved ones, could set them free. And now these indulgences are beginning to spread around. And in order to really push the sale of these indulgences, they hired a salesman by the name of Johann Tetzel. And Johann Tetzel was a very, very good uh, salesman. He even had a jingle. I mean, if you watch commercials today, you will know that there are a lot of jingles out there. The greatest quarterback who ever lived that graduated from the University of Tennessee back in 1997, played for the Colts, played for the Broncos, um, all-time great. Also does commercials. You may or may not know that. And uh, Peyton Manning... Will tell you that nationwide is on your side. You remember that, don't you? Or, like a good neighbor, State Farm yeah. is there, you know, so on and so We have those jingles today. Well, Johann Tetzel had a jingle. Some of you already know it. We were talking about this last night. And he would go from town to town and he would sing his jingle. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Now, Tetzel was a phenomenal salesman, and he was a great preacher as well. Not a preacher of truth, but he was a great speaker, I should say. And he would ride into town, and there would be horns blowing and banners flying, and he would set up shop in the marketplace, and he would begin talking to the people, saying his jingle, and and really weighing on the heartstrings. Listen to one of Tetzel's sermons, and after this, Rusty's going to pass the plate around. Tetzel said, You should know that all who confess and in penance put alms into the coffer according to the counsel of the confessor will obtain complete remission of all their sins. Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents and others who say, Have mercy upon me, have mercy upon me, because we are in severe punishment and pain from this. You could redeem us with small alms, and yet you do not want to do so. Open your ears as the Father says to the Son and the Mother to the Daughter. We created you, we fed you, we cared for you, and we left you our temporal goods. Why then are you so cruel and harsh that you do not want to save us, though it only takes a little? You let us lie in flames so that we only slowly come to the promised glory." What a sermon. And the coffer would start ringing very loudly as he would guilt trip and weigh on the heartstrings of the people, telling them to put their money in so that they could save their parents and themselves from purgatory. Now, tradition has it. Now, you know about the thing about tradition sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. I choose to believe that this one is true, even though I can't prove it. But tradition has it that someone once approached Tetzel about buying an indulgence and asked him and said, Sir, if I buy this indulgence from you, will I receive forgiveness of all the sins I've ever committed? Oh, yes, sir, Tetzel said. Oh, yes. You buy this indulgence, all your sins will be forgiven. But if I buy this indulgence from you, that's great that my past sins will be forgiven. But what about my future sins? What about the sins I've not yet committed? Will I be forgiven of all of my future sins also that I'll never have to worry about being forgiven ever again that I buy this indulgence and I'm absolved from all future sins? Ted's, oh yes, sir. Put your money in and all of your future sins even will be forgiven. And the man said, wow, that sounds like a great deal. And he He bought an indulgence from Tetzel and Tetzel gave him the slip of paper, the certificate that said he had truly been forgiven. And then the man proceeded to rob Tetzel of all that he had and took all of his money and said, well, good thing I was forgiven uh, for the sin that I just committed against you, sir. That's the kind of foolishness that had happened. The stories that would come out, however, would be of the town drunk there in Wittenberg and Luther would... See him, and he would have the certificate of indulgence in his hand. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. Well, this really upset the people in Germany because so much of their money was going to Rome. They were already under all the economic abuse that we have talked about, and there was more of that even in taking place in Germany. But Luther, being the people's priest in Wittenberg, sees his people, his parishioners, leaving his town and going to another town where Tetzel is, and they're they're being manipulated. And Luther feels that it's his responsibility to protect those people. And so he wanted to have a debate on this subject, and so he wrote what we know as the 95 Theses, or Thesis, whatever you call it which were really 95 points of debate. And he, he marched into town there in Wittenberg and he went to the door of Castle Church and he took a hammer and some nails and he nailed the 95 thesis to the door of the church. Now, if somebody did that to one of our churches today, we'd be very upset. That would be vandalism. But for them, that was nothing out of the common. I mean, that was, that was nothing out of the ordinary. Luther wasn't vandalizing the property. He, did, he didn't walk up there making a statement. He wasn't blowing a trumpet. He wasn't trying to get all sorts of attention all he was doing was making a public challenge for a debate, and it really wasn't even meant to be uh, taken by the average people. And 95 Theses were written in Latin. Well, the people couldn't read Latin. Only the clergy could read Latin. So this was really just meant to be in the hands of, of the, the clergy and of the ministers there. He wanted to challenge them to uh, debate. But in these 95 Theses, Luther attacked the church's understanding of works and penance, and most importantly, the Use of indulgences. Let me read you a couple of those. Luther said, "...the Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring that it has been remitted by God and by assenting to God's remission. Thus those indulgence preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgence. They preach vanity who say that the soul flies out of purgatory as soon as the money thrown into the chest rattles." On the way to eternal damnation are they and their teachers who believe that they are sure of their salvation through indulgences. We assert, on the contrary, that the popish pardon cannot take away the least of daily sins as regards the the guilt of it. So you can see how Luther is really strongly condemning the practice of indulgences. Now, as I said, Luther had no idea that this was going to be such an extraordinary, one of the greatest events that ever took place In history, But what he wasn't counting on is that some of the students there at Wittenberg could read Latin and they saw what Luther had done and they thought it was significant and they took it down and they took it to the printing press which had been invented by this time and was now in Germany and they made copies of it and they shipped it out far and wide so that it was spreading abroad now and Luther is becoming a revolutionary. Not only this, but Luther himself sent a copy to the archbishop who just so happened to be the Archbishop of Mainz, who was involved in this indulgent scandal with the Pope. Luther didn't know that. And when the Archbishop receives a copy of the 95 Thesis, the Archbishop sent it to the Pope. Within two weeks of October 31st, 1517, the Pope has the 95 Theses in his hands. He, he never expected that. But... If, At first, the Pope dismissed it. The Pope said, this is nothing but the ramblings of a drunken German. He'll think differently once he sobers up. But Luther didn't think differently, did he? Well, this was the beginning for Luther. And what most people don't know is that this was actually before Luther was converted. It is a source of debate, actually, and you can read some great scholars who will tell you differently than this, but I do not agree with them. I'm not painting myself as an expert or anything like that. Just look at the evidence. It does not appear to me that Luther was converted when he nailed the 95 Theses to the dwarf of Castle Church. Now, you ask why I say that. Well, what is the chief doctrine that led to the conversion of Luther? Of course... It was justification by faith alone. There is absolutely nothing in the 95 Theses about justification by faith alone. Don't you think that if Luther was going to challenge the church that he would have challenged more than just indulgences? He would have challenged the the doctrine of justification and the the false gospel of the Roman church, but there's no mention of it. Luther talks about purgatory in a positive way. He talks about indulgences. He doesn't even condemn indulgences outright in the 95 Theses. He just condemns the abusive practice as what was happening here with Tetzel. So Luther, in my estimation, and many others, it's not like I'm alone. I'm not going out on a limb here. But a lot of scholars believe that Luther was not yet converted in 1517. Most likely it was in 1518, a year later, while Luther is in the tower at the monastery that he came to understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone and would be converted. This is described as his tower experience. And Uh, You can read a lot about that. Well, in his 1545 commentary on Romans, he reflects on this experience and he speaks of the suddenness of his conversion. That during this time, he began to think differently about God. He was focused on the doctrine of the righteousness of God. And he was asking the question, what does the Bible mean when it speaks of the righteousness of God? He had been taught to believe, that the righteousness of God is an act of righteousness, a righteousness that demanded that every person measure up and keep the law in order to have favor with God because God is holy. God could never lower the standards. And so man had to live up to the righteousness of God in order to be right with God. And so to Luther, this meant human effort, that he had to work and, and to earn favor with God. That's why as a monk, he worked so hard, but as he is reading his Bible, he is pondering Romans one seventeen. Romans one seventeen says, "...for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith." And then Romans 3.21, "...but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it." Now, a study of these verses and a study of the book of Romans in particular caused Martin to begin thinking differently about the righteousness of God. No longer did he see it as an act of righteousness that stressed the righteousness of men and the efforts of men, but instead as a passive righteousness. A righteousness, that is, which the Christian himself is passive He does no good works to earn God's blessings. Luther called this an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of himself. And by this, the standards of God are in no way diminished, but God graciously brings the righteousness of Christ to the Christian. And this act where the righteousness of Christ is brought to the Christian is a gift given by God to be received through faith. Folks, this is the gospel. And you may be here today and and you don't understand the gospel and you think that eternal life is based upon something that you must do. And if you go around in our world today, our country today, and you ask somebody, just go to the store out here later and be bold and courageous and walk up to someone and ask them if they're a Christian. And if they say yes, ask them how they know that they're a Christian. And I found it far more than I have not, that they will say, because I am a good person. I wonder if anybody in here today believes that. That you're right with God because you're a good person. Well, you might be a good person by man's standards. But by God's standards, you are a sinner who is destined to receive his justice. And there is not a thing that you can do to change that. A leopard cannot change his spots. You cannot clean out your own heart. You cannot, by works and effort earn God's favor, take away your sin, and make yourself righteous before God. You cannot do it. And so if you are going to be righteous before God, you must have that righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ that is imputed or applied. It's credited to your account so that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that God now sees you as innocent and holy not on what you have done but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. That's the gospel. It's through faith in the finished work of Christ that we receive Christ's righteousness and therefore are declared to be justified in the sight of God. This is what Luther learned. And I want to tell you something. This is what we must be proclaiming, not only because it's the gospel, but because even in America, people don't know it. They don't know it. The greatest lie that the enemy has ever told is that we can be right with God on the basis of our performance. And even people in the Bible Belt believe that. And it's a lie that will condemn you to hell. Well, Luther said this about his experience. He said, quote, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that He was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with His righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, Romans 1.17, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. And at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night. I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning, the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered into paradise itself through open gates. And I extolled with sweetest words, with a love as as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the words righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me the very gate to paradise. Luther's talking about sola fide, isn't he? Justification by faith alone. He is converted and he would preach a sermon on this topic entitled Two Kings of Righteousness. And in that sermon, he asserts, quote, through faith in Christ, therefore Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness and all that He has becomes ours. Rather, He Himself becomes ours. Such a faith is called the righteousness of God. This is the righteousness given in place of the original righteousness lost in Adam. So if you are here today and and you don't know Jesus Christ and you think that you're going to get to heaven or enter into God's presence on the basis of your performance, I have to tell you that's a lie. God gives you eternal life to be received through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ, His perfect life, His atoning work on the cross, and His resurrection from the dead. Through faith alone in Christ, salvation is given to you as a gift from God. This is the gospel, and this is the key for Luther. This was... Salvation was not through the endless rituals of the Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't through penance. It wasn't through obedience. Salvation is by faith alone and in Christ alone. Well, Luther's preaching this now. And so as a result of all of this and and the 95 Theses and everything else that Luther is doing, the Pope wants Luther to stand trial for heresy at Rome in 1518, but Frederick defends Luther and urges the Pope to send a delegate to Wittenberg to, to have a conversation with Luther, and the Pope agreed. And he sent Cardinal Cajetan to have this debate. And they did have a debate there at Wittenberg, and Luther ripped him to shreds with the Scriptures because Cardinal Cajetan doesn't know the Scriptures, but Luther does. At the end of their discussion, Luther, again, ladies and gentlemen, God uses imperfect men. God uses men who are sometimes rough around the edges. At the end of the debate, Luther was basically reduced to laughing at Cardinal Cajetan because Cajetan had no response to the things that Luther uh, was saying. He he said some other words about Cajetan as well, but we'll leave that for another day. Luther was sent to Heidelberg dis- Disputation, which was not about Luther. He was really a representative of his Augustinian order. And, and while there, he's defending a strong view of the depravity of man and the moral issues that he sees in the church as well as the influence of philosophy. And this disputation calls more and more people to become concerned with this monk and, and everything that he is teaching. And so in 1519, a man named Johann Eck, not Tetzel, but Eck, who was one of the leading theologians in Germany and, and the chancellor of Ingolstadt, is concerned about Luther and he challenges him and some of his his uh, colleagues there at Wittenberg to a debate in Leipzig. And this debate lasts 18 days. And, and Luther... Brought with him his associate Karlstadt. Now, Luther's better known, but, but Karlstadt was actually the higher ranking official there in Wittenberg. And so Karlstadt debates Eck twice. Luther only debates him once. And in his debate with Eck, Luther began to speak more of his doctrinal issues with the church rather than simply the moral issues. Luther states that the power of the keys. Now, the Pope claims that the keys that were given to Peter in Matthew 16 or given to the church, rather. The Pope claims that those keys were given to Peter and that these keys would then be given, handed down to each successor to Peter, who is, of course, the bishop of Rome, the Pope. And so the Pope has the keys to heaven and earth in his hands, is their argument. Luther says, no, no, no. Those keys are given to the church, not to the Pope. And, of course, that upsets them. And Luther says that to believe in the preeminence of the Roman church was not necessary To be saved, he said that absolution by the priest does not cleanse a person of their sin. And so Luther, in this debate, he attacks the Pope, he attacks Rome, he attacks the sacramental system, and, and, and Eck pushed Luther until Luther would also admit that popes and councils had made mistakes. I know that's shocking to you, but he pushes Luther until Luther would admit that. And Luther said, quote, a council may sometimes err. err. Neither the church nor the Pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. And this is when Luther really began to be a reformer. He's presenting, what is he presenting? Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is the foundation of faith and practice of the church. Well, Eck is hearing all this and he points his bony finger. I don't know if it's bony, but that looks better, don't it? He? he points his bony finger there at, at Luther and he says, You're a Hussite, is what he says. You're one of those. John Huss disciples. And he was right. Luther was a John Huss disciple. Now, I didn't tell you this last night, but when John Huss was being burned at the stake, he said these very famous words. He really prophesied. I don't believe in the continuation of prophecy, but in some ways, John Huss really prophesied. He said this, you may cook this goose. Remember, Huss is from Goosetown. His name, Huss, means goose. You may cook this goose. But a hundred years from now, there will come a swan that you will not be able to roast or to boil. If you ever wonder where the phrase his goose is cooked comes from, it comes from John Huss. And almost a hundred years to the day after he said those words, Martin Luther, the great reformer, arrives on the scene. And I have a picture somewhere um, of Luther. If you go look at ancient paintings of Luther, on many occasions in those paintings, if you look in the background, you're going to see a swan in the background of the painting because Luther is really the fulfillment of the words uh, that John Huss had said. Well, in 1520... The Pope officially excommunicated Luther and a papal bull was sent to Germany to Martin Luther. And the bull that was sent began with these words, Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. I mean, If there was ever a fitting description for Martin Luther, it was a wild boar. Well, the bull finally reached Luther and and it gave him 60 days upon receipt to repent and recant His heresy. Well, what did Luther do? Sixty days after he had received the papal bull, he threw a party and he started a big bonfire and he burned the papal bull in front of all of his buddies there in that great bonfire. And he was officially excommunicated in January of 1521. And so now Luther is the emperor's problem now. And so Charles V called him to come and give an account in April of 1521. This was held at Worms on German soil, and he was promised safe conduct. Where have you heard that before? Just like John Huss, right? He was promised safe conduct. Come to Worms, I promise nothing's going to happen to you. Well, Luther went anyway. Of course, he knew what had happened to John Huss, but he, he went anyway. And on the way there, the crowds came out and they were praising Luther. They saw him as a champion fighting against the abuses of the church. And actually, Charles V was more upset because Luther got more applause than he did when he came into town versus when the emperor, emperor, and so Luther gets there at Worms. Vorm, and here is Charles, the most powerful person in the world. He's present at this. You know, in, in German it's pronounced Diet. We would it's spelled Diet. So. It's really spelled diet of worms, but we're going to call it Di- diet of worms. We're going to compromise and we're going to call it diet of worms. That's what this is called. And here at worms is the, the emperor, papal legates, cardinals. Right here in this room, standing before Luther, are the most powerful people in the world who literally, if they open their mouth, could have Luther killed. On the spot, at least they think they could, right? This is who Luther is staring down at this diet that he has come to participate in. Well, in spite of their hatred for the German monk, it was clear that they had respect for his abilities, and they were told not to let Luther speak, no matter what, do not let him speak, don 't let him try to debate, don 't let him try to lecture. They were afraid that he would persuade. And so they were told to keep him silent. And so Luther walks into the room and there's his buddy, Johann Eck, standing there. And Eck points, again, that bony finger of his, over to uh, the table that has Luther's books and writings on them. And he just asks one simple question. Will you recant of what you have written here? And Luther begins to speak and says, Now wait a minute, I've written on a lot of subjects. Many of those subjects you wouldn't even disagree with. I can't recant of everything. I would just be recanting of things the church even agrees with. Nope, nope, no. Will you or will you not recant of what you have written in these works? What did Luther say? He said, can I have 24 hours to think about it? That's surprising, isn't it? Here is this powerful, mighty champion of Scripture. But here he is in this room, and he's looking at an elevated Emperor Charles. He's looking at all these papal legates and all these cardinals. He knows his life is on the line. And he's asked if he will recant. And trembling in fear, he says, Can I have 24 hours to think it over? Amazingly, they let him do it. So he retired to his room there at Vorms, and he spent all night in prayer. And really, he was asking one question. Am I alone wise? Am I alone wise? It seemed to him that he was all by himself, and in a lot of ways, he was, wasn't he? The whole church is going this one direction and Luther is riding against them and charging them. Even the Pope himself is said to be in error against Luther. Am I alone wise? Well, he prayed about it all night long and he came back to the room there at Worms the next day and he was asked again if he would recant. And now he's ready. Luther said this, Since then, your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner plain and unvarnished, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason. For I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves. I am bound to the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God, I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither right nor safe to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. What boldness there in that room, staring down Charles V and the others. Well, after he said these words, he turned around and he got out of there. (laughs) But as he walked out, tradition tells us that he raised his arms in victory like he had just won a boxing match or something like that. And he walks out to the applause of the people and he gets on his carriage and he starts heading back to Wittenberg. And he is an outlaw. The emperor had given him 21 days of safe conduct. And after those 21 days, Luther can be killed by anyone. Anyone who sees Luther can kill him on the spot and claim a reward because he is an outlaw. Luther is on his way back to Wittenberg from Worms knowing that he has only weeks to live and that's even if they honor the 21-day safe passage. When all of a sudden, men on horses surround his carriage and they take Luther and they kidnap him and they take him away. I wonder what Luther was thinking when those horses rode up on that day. But it turns out that those horsemen were sent by Duke Frederick of Saxony who kidnapped Luther in order to protect him. And they rushed him away and they put him up in a castle at Vortburg and they gave him a pseudonym. He started going by a false name, Younger George, and he dressed as a knight. And he was there in disguise, hiding so that he would be he would be safe. Well, he's in this castle, and he is depressed. His, his health is failing him. At one point, he even picks up an inkwell, and he throws it at the wall famously because he thought the devil was attacking him. But if, there's, if the devil's attacking anyone in the 16th century, it's Martin Luther. You can still see that ink stain on the wall there today, by the way. Well, he's under all this, compress- this pressure. He, he's sick. He's not sleeping. He's dealing with with stomach issues and and he can't sleep all these things and you know I don't know about you but when I feel bad I really don't feel like doing anything. Can you relate to that? If you're having stomach issues and you're tired and you're not sleeping and you're depressed and down, the only thing I feel like doing is sitting on the couch or you know just getting away off by myself. I don't feel like doing anything. Well the only thing that Luther did was you know in in about a year translate the Bible from, you know, Latin into German. You know, no big deal, you know. But that's what he did. While he's there in Wartburg, in he is translating the Bible. Remember, the people don't have the Bible in their language. Here we are in, in German, Germany, and they don't have the Bible in their own language. And so Luther, while he's up there hiding in this castle in Wartburg, decides the best thing he can do is to give the people the Bible. And that's what he did. Luther not only preached in the language of the people, but he is meeting this great need of the people to have the Bible so they can read it and study study it. Now at first Luther only translated the New Testament but having completed the New Testament he also enlisted some friends to help him and he translated the Old Testament as well and the New Testament was published in 1522 the complete Bible was published in 1534 and Luther was able to revise it several times before his death and the invention of the printing press certainly helped with this. It's it's estimated that Luther's New Testament sold 5,000 copies in the first two months alone and was Officially sold out. Historians tell us that Luther's German Bible had three to four times the effect on the Germans that the King James Bible had on the English. I mean, it had a major, you can think about that, they had a major, major effect on the German people. And his Bible would be like pouring gas on the fire of the Reformation as God's Word spread throughout Germany. Well, Luther was at Wartburg for nearly a year. He accomplished all of this there. He wrote a treatise on monastic vows. He's doing some radical things. Now he's saying that monks do not have to keep their vows of celibacy, that monks can now be married. And so you can just imagine all around Germany, the monasteries and the convents are emptying left and right as monks and nuns are fleeing and and escaping and trying to be married. And Luther himself would become a a matchmaker. He himself would even get married to Katharina von Bora, Katie Luther. Really funny story how he ended up... Uh, marrying her, there was a group of nuns who were in a convent and they couldn't get out, but they had come, become sympathetic to the Reformation. They had believed Luther and somehow word got out to Luther about this. And so he decided that he was going to smuggle them out of there. And so one morning they brought in all these barrels of fish to have in order to feed the people. Well, the barrels were emptied and the fish were put away. And then the nuns came out and snuck and hid themselves in those barrels of fish. And they escorted those nuns right out in those barrels and got them on the carriage and took them out of that convent. And Luther found a husband for every one of them except for Katerina von Bora who had her eyes on Luther alone. No, you're the man that I want to marry. He had no interest in her whatsoever. Luther and his personality again said some things that you, know, that, you, know, you men shouldn't say to your wives and all that kind of stuff. But eventually she won him over and, and he married her. And he said, it's a strange thing marriage. You wake up the next morning, there's a set of pigtails on the pillow next to you. He said, I don't know what to think of it. Eventually, he would love her so much, though, he would look at the book of Galatians, and he would call the book of Galatians, that great book on justification, and he would say, this is my Katie. That's how much he loved it, and how much he loved her as well. And so all this is radical change. Uh, The mass is no longer the central part of the church service. Even the architecture reflects that before the the table for the mass is in the center. The pulpit's off to the side. But after that, the tables moved off to the side. The pulpit is brought to the center. Even architecture emphasizes the supremacy of God's word and the priority of God's word in the church service. Uh, the Lord's the Lord's supper, both bread and cup. Remember, I told you last night they didn't give the cup to the laity. Now it is the bread and the the cup are given to uh, the laity. And so all these things are are asking are, are happening here in. Germany. And at one point, Charles V asked Frederick, why are you protecting an outlaw? And Frederick replied, he is my subject and I owe him protection. And so Frederick would protect Luther. Well, it's at this point, 1521 to 1522 that the Turks became such a threat that Charles had to leave and, and go to Spain and create an army to fight the Turks. And, and Luther, again, is safe because of that other threat that Charles has to deal with. And even in the providence of God in that, Luther is protected. He'll live the rest of his life as an outlaw. Let's finish today. I realize our time has come now. Let's finish by quickly talking about Luther's legacy. It's really hard to summarize his legacy, isn't it? I mean, we, we're going to talk about another man here in a minute. We've talked about several others, but there's a reason why many people believe that the Reformation started with Luther in, in Wittenberg because in many ways it did. It was really, I mean, it was really the, the big Even though there was the Waldensians and there was Wycliffe and and there was the Lollards and there was Huss and there was others, Luther is what really exploded the Reformation onto the world. And so Luther, he put the Bible in the hands of the people. He translated the Bible into German. He wrote catechisms. He preached in the German language. And Luther would tell you that this was the reason for his success. Again, this, this is what we wanted to be our emphasis because we live in a day and age where we think we've got to change, we've got to do something else. But Luther would remind you that the reason for the success of the Reformation was not himself, was not his personality. It wasn't his gifts or intelligence or anything. It was the Bible. Listen to what Luther said. He said, Christ himself wrote nothing, nor did he give command to write, but to preach orally. And Luther would do that. He preached 7,000 sermons there in Wittenberg. He continued. He said, I simply taught preached and wrote God's Word, otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did everything." End quote. I did nothing. The Word did everything. And it was because of the Holy Spirit working through His Word that Lutheranism, Scripture, and and the doctrine of justification would spread like wildfire. And following his influence, really Protestantism would be born. Now people have two, two options. They have Roman Catholicism and they have Protestantism. Shelley summarizes Luther's legacy. He says, Luther took four basic Catholic concerns and he offered invigorating new answers to the question, how is a person saved? Luther replied, not by works, but by faith alone. To the question, where does religious authority lie? He answered, not in the visible institution called the Roman church, but in the word of God found in the Bible. To the question, what is the church? He responded, the whole community of Christian believers, since all are priests before God. And to the question, what is the essence of Christian living? He replied, serving God in any useful calling, whether ordained or lay. All of those changes are radical during this time. And so here is the victory in Wittenberg with a nobody some German monk who was boisterous and courageous and sometimes foul-mouthed, I admit. And yet God used a man like that to change the world. And He did it through means of His Word. Let's not forget that. Let's pray. Father, again, we are amazed at what You have done. We worship You. We love You. We ask that you would make us faithful students and faithful witnesses to your word. And we ask yet again that you would work in our churches, that you would return the church again to submission to your truth, that we would be faithful servants. Bless our time. We have talked about the gospel today. There may be someone here today that doesn't know you, that hasn't been saved. Maybe they're trusting in their performance. May you show them how that is a lie. That salvation is a gift that you give that we must receive. May you put that within their heart that they might be converted today. We thank you for your goodness to us. In Christ's name, amen.